Welcome to Liquid Church Audio. The message you're about to enjoy was originally delivered live at Liquid Church by Pastor Tim Lucas. LiquidChurch.com, living water for a thirsty world. Greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. Who would you be willing to lay down your life for if you had to cut that rope? To save another person's life, sacrifice yourself so that they may go free, who would you do that for? Who's on that list? I'm guessing it's a short list. I mean, it's, not an, e- it's an easy answer for only parents, I think. I think most parents would say, well, my you know, son, my daughter, I might give up my life for theirs so they could live, but um, you'd be willing to die in their place. If you're married, maybe your spouse, maybe my husband, my wife, you know, uh, depending on the situation though, you may be like, actually, give me the knife, I'll cut them loose. Um, family's a no-brainer. What about a stranger? Someone you didn't know. Maybe it was a woman or child, you'd be stirred to heroism. But what if at the end of the rope, or right above you, was your enemy? Would you cut yourself loose so that your enemy could live? These are hard questions. Greater love is known than this, that he laid down his life for his friends. What about enemies? I want to welcome you to part seven of Reasons to Believe, especially um, those of you watching or listening online in Melbourne Beyond. We're asking a hard question today, and that's the question, why did Jesus have to die? Um, if you've come to church for a while, go back one there, Phil, you're ahead. They, you're a Christian or not, everyone knows at the heart of Christianity is the cross of Jesus Christ. And on the cross, Jesus died so that we, God could forgive our sins. But you know what? That's actually troubling to a lot of people. Because for a lot of people outside of Christianity, that whole proposition that God cuts loose his son to save our life, it seems troubling. I had someone say, well, if God's so good, so powerful, so loving, why can't he just forgive? Why does someone have to die? My neighbor, uh, who I was talking with this week, she, she said, she, she said I, I, this whole Christian thing, she goes, I don't like the whole death part, the, the sacrifice, the bloody, you know, all that, all that kind of stuff. She said, why can't, um, you know, God just forgive? It seems like the Christian God is this like bloodthirsty, vengeful deity from, from the first century. And the answer is real forgiveness, if it is to save a life, requires costly sacrifice. Each one of you, even though you may not know this, You intuitively know what it costs to forgive somebody. Last winter, I have a friend who has a couple of sons, and uh, one of his sons is four years old, and uh, the other son came running in. He was shaving in the morning, and, um, whoa, I got to be careful there. This is, this is, whoa, props today. He was shaving, and his little boy comes in, and he goes, Daddy, Daddy, Donnie is shoveling. It was winter. It had snowed the night before. Daddy, Daddy, Donnie is shoveling is outside in the snow. And he said, well, does he have a boot, his boots on? He goes, yeah, but he, you're not going to like it. And he said, well, he's, sho- he's shoveling. He said, what, what, what's the big deal? He said, he's shoveling in the driveway. He said, that's great. He's four years old. Amazing. Go. And uh, he said, no, look, he's shoveling your car out. And he said, he's only four years old. And he looked through the window blinds, and there was his four-year-old boy standing on the hood of his sob with a shovel. Digging, gouging, right in the hood, digging it out, digging it out. And, uh, and he was like, no, you know, and he got outside and got him to stop and everything. And went an estimate, estimate of the damage on the hood of his sob, $1,800. Now, his son was four years old, so it's like, well, you know, who's going to pay for that? You know, the kid didn't know any better. So he let him off the hook, $1,800. That was the price of letting his son go, but a little bit easier because he's four years old and he didn't know what he was doing. 
Now, on the cross, Jesus' last words, and this may help us understand this, is, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. And that's troubling, though, because we actually know from Scripture that Jesus' enemies knew exactly what they were doing when they nailed him to the cross. The religious leaders of Israel kind of actually led it. They accused him. They set up a mock trial. Pilate actually handed Jesus over to be flogged, beaten, abused by soldiers, taunted, mocked by the crowd, and deserted by his closest friends and left to hang on a Roman execution device. In many ways, they knew exactly what they were doing. His enemies were quite intentional about it. And this is where it gets sticky for us. Because when we think about our enemies or people who wrong us, it's not as easy as letting a four-year-old go and just pay the bill ourselves. Some of you have known um, serious abuse. Maybe you have been uh, physically attacked. Maybe you've been unjustly accused. Maybe you've been verbally had your reputation shredded. Maybe you've been um, physically assaulted, sexually abused, and you still have the, the wounds or the marks to show for it. I dare say the situation with my buddy's sob would be a little bit different if it was the, uh, you know, 14-year-old next door, his neighbor who did that, you know, a teenager on the hood of his car. And think about that. If, if the kid next door did that to the hood of your car, 14 years old, kind of vandal, what would you do? I mean, insurance doesn't cover you know, willful damage. So really, you have three options. The first would be to say, you know, I'm going to press charges and demand that he pay for the damages. That is called, we learned last week, justice. That's what the law is for. You turn people who wound you over to the law. There are consequences. You say, you got to pay for this. The second option would be to actually forgive them. You don't call the cops or you maybe tell their parents and say, you got to pay the bill for this 1800 bucks. You forgive them, but let them off. It's called mercy. But the parents, they still have to pay. They pay. The third option is the one that bothers us. Because the third option says, actually $1,800, I will pay the bill myself. And once I get it repaired, I'm going to call that 17-year-old kid over here and say, when you get your license and permit this fall, here are the keys. You can take it out on the weekends. Oh, grace. Grace is a whole nother thing. Which means someone wrongs you or sins against you or has a debt. You don't actually just forgive them. You pay the price yourself and then bless them in an unexpected way. Notice something. In all three of those options, somebody has to pay. Either they or you absorb the cost for the offense, and it doesn't just vanish in the thin air, but, but grace is, is, is scandalous. It is at the heart of Christianity, and it means paying the cost of your enemy so they can live and paying yourself. We pay the price for their sin. Now, here's the problem. Most of the wrongs that are done to us are not simply economic as a scratched-up car. Most of them are relational. Think about who would be your closest enemy. Who would be the person who's really wronged you the most in your life? This week I've heard from a lot of you about how grace is like very challenging for you when you think about people in your life who've hurt you and are not easy to love. I heard it from a friend who uh, actually his his business partner screwed him royally. Uh, They worked together in the same office, same firm, and uh, decided to actually resign and launch out, start their own practice, and uh, got an office, went through the licensing, invested major capital up front, actually invested personal savings, huge risk, going after the dream together. And a few days before they were to launch out, he gets a call from his friend who said, I'm out. He said, what what, what do you mean you're out? And he said, I'm out, I'm out. And he told him he hadn't been up front with him through the whole process and uh, had gone through some things in 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 his life, his background, that he'd been hiding but would make it impossible for them to practice together. And, uh, and that he was pulling out. And he stuck his friend with the bill. And he said, you can't imagine this. I trusted him. I staked everything I had. Professional career, personal savings, only to be left high and dry footing the bill. Betrayal. Nothing more painful than that. I mean, what does grace look like in that scenario? How do you even begin to forgive someone who betrays you like that? 
ran into another one of you this week uh, here in Morristown, and, and this, he told me that he was going through some economic troubles over the past year. But his mother died and actually left the house to him and his sister. And uh, his sister now is suing him, basically, uh, to, to cut him out of the picture and keep the house for herself. She knows he can't really afford the legal fees, so instead of helping him while he's down, she's putting the screws to him and trying to steal what's rightfully his. Love your enemies. What does grace look like there? I mean, come on. The last example that really cut me to the heart was an email I got from a guy on Monday here at Liquid who was writing on behalf of his wife. Here's what he wrote. He said, hey, Tim, I just want to thank you for the sermon on Sunday. Uh, we were faced with a challenge yesterday where it haunted us. Long story short, due to various circumstances, my wife didn't see or speak to her father for about seven years. There was a very messy divorce with her mother, who's no angel herself and, and some other stuff. Well, out of the blue, on Monday, she gets a voicemail from him saying that he's on his way to New Jersey from Ohio, where he's a truck driver, and would like to speak about meeting for dinner and possibly staying. They haven't spoken in seven years. He has stage three colon cancer, so we knew him contacting us was inevitability, but weren't just prepared for it. So my wife and I talked about it at lunch, and I cautioned that maybe an overnight would be a bit much with my three kids never having even met him. After seven years of silence, I suggested, well, maybe just dinner and emphasizing the need for boundaries. That's the Christian thing to say, right? My wife paused and responded, wouldn't that just be mercy? What about grace? Can you feel the dagger being inserted in me? I freaking couldn't argue that as hard as I tried. I was like, come on, God, you couldn't give us an easy warm-up after Sunday? I mean, this is a decent-sized father wound. Anyway, he came last night, prayed for us. Pray. That's real life. It's messy. And to show grace, especially to someone who's really hurt you, I mean, it entails risk. We each have, an, an, we each have someone who owes us a debt. Who would, be that in your, who, who would that be in your life? Who would be your, your, your enemy that you would call to mind? They could have an economic debt, you know, like the friend or partner who says to you. It could be relational the parents who neglected or abused you. When we have someone who's truly wronged us, and yet we're convinced that God calls us to forgiveness, grace, it's costly. It actually involves huge sacrifice. That doesn't seem fair. And it really helps us understand why Jesus had to die on the cross. Because not only did Jesus pray from the cross, Father, forgive them. He instructed us to pray that way. Again, even if you're new to Christianity or just casual observer, you recognize it as the center, probably the most recognizable part of the Lord's Prayer, right? Jesus taught us to pray, forgive us our debts, what? Go ahead, Phil. As we also have forgiven our debtors. That's an amazing clause. As we also, I think they're the three most scandalous words in the Bible. As we also, come on, there's like this divine expectation behind grace. It's offered to us free of charge, no strings attached, but, but there's a sense that there's this divine expectation that it's going to change us, that there's this yearning, there's this new power and desire to extend that kind of forgiveness now to people who sin against us. And, and that's not natural. Think about your enemy for a moment, the person who owes you the greatest debt in your life. Um, here's the deal. Just be honest. When others wound us, it is the most natural, instinctive voice within that says, that wasn't right. They need to pay for what they did. And here's the deal. That's a God-given voice. A lot of people shame you for that and say, that's horrible. How, you know, that's what, no. Vengeance actually is a godly characteristic. Vengeance is mine, says God, right? The desire to see justice in your relationships when a wrong is committed, that was planted in your heart by God in whose image you have been made. We all have an innate sense of justice. 
Someone steals something from you. I mean, I'm not talking just even happiness, your reputation, innocence, some aspect of your freedom. You feel violated. And you intuitively sense you want to make them pay for what they did. Now, here's the deal. In the kingdom of this world, the real world, the default option is revenge. Right? Eye for eye, tooth for tooth, take out your little doll, stick the pins in. That's the Old Testament. Payback is the currency. We all have options for this. My friend who was screwed by his business partner, he can take him to court. He's like, I could try to get my losses back. Uh, the gal who had the lousy dad hasn't spoken in seven years. They're like, you know, she and her husband, they could in his dying days hold, withhold relationship from him to pay him back for all the pain he caused in their lives. There are all sorts of things, revenge you can take. If you've been slandered, cut, you can confront your enemy head on, say things that hurt them and, and tarnish their reputation. Now, by the way, here's a dirty little secret uh, that most pastors won't acknowledge. When our enemies suffer, um, you actually do begin to feel better. <laughs> You, you, know, you actually begin to feel a certain satisfaction now that they're paying for what they did. I just want to call that out and acknowledge that. Revenge can satisfy, at least for the short term. See, long term, we have some major problems with that, and some of you know that. One is that you will likely become harder and colder as a person. If your enemy, let's say your enemy is your ex, and you, and you nurse that grudge, you harbor ill will, you may become, very, chances are, permanently cynical and bitter towards members of the opposite sex for the rest of your life. With each subsequent then, you know, failed relationship, that original damage inflicts subsequent losses and it never heals and you actually become embittered. Or if you insist on payback, like for the family member, say the father, my friend, even if he's not like allowed back into the family, that makes us feel good. How's that feel, dad? You draw pleasure from that? The kids will notice. They'll get the message. They, They got the message. Family love is not unconditional. There are limits unforgiveness. The problem of revenge is that it often sets in motion this kind of like cycle of reaction and retaliation. You ever go up, you ever see the escalators in the mall, like one's going up and one's going down by it? It sets us like on this escalator of pain where for the most part, it's okay until in the middle we meet and come face to face. And all of a sudden, all the anger, all the hostility comes flooding right back to us. Every time we go around and meet them in the middle, it comes flooding right back to us and you resent them. That's an amazing term, by the way, resentment. Throw that up there, Nick. This is fascinating. What word do you see in there after re? Sentiment. Sentiment, meaning feeling. Re-feeling. In other words, resentment is feeling the same thing over and over and over again. You never let go. Every time you make your enemy pay for their pain, it creates resentment. It picks the scab. In other words, the original evil done to you spreads. And it spreads into your own character. It never disappears. You remain, as it were, tied or harnessed to your offender, and you're always going to be tethered to the original wound and the hurt. And every time you see them, it never lets go. That's the hard thing about living in the kingdom of the world. Now, the kingdom of God, which Jesus came to introduce us to, is difficult. Because the other option says, instead of revenge against you, I am going to sacrifice myself to forgive and cut myself loose and let you go free and commit you to God's hands. Very unnatural. Probably the hardest thing in life we will ever, some of you, attempt to do because forgiveness is not... To err is human. To forgive is 
divine. Yeah, it is costly. It defies your natural instincts and abilities to save your enemy. If someone's robbed you, you don't pay their debt and bless them with a gift with forgiveness, but mark this. This is the only way you will ever cut yourself loose or get off the escalator of pain. To actually root out that hot desire for it to get even more importantly, overcome evil with good. This is the pathway of grace. And it flows out of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. And when we choose it, the non-believing world almost can't believe what they're seeing. Um, I told you last week about the Amish schoolhouse tragedy in Pennsylvania a couple of years ago. Um, the scandalous response of the Amish parents to the family of the shooter. Not only forgiving the man for his horrific sin, he murdered five innocent Amish school children, but offering grace to his family on top of it. It stunned our world. Uh, when money poured in for the families of the victimized girls, they insisted on sharing it with the wife and children of the killer and actually caring for them, taking them in. This MSNBC report really captures the unnerving power of grace when forgiveness trumps revenge. It was just one of the many extraordinary gestures of forgiveness contained in our number three story in the countdown tonight. The family of Marion Fisher, one of the Amish girls killed in a schoolhouse on Monday, invited the widow of her killer to their little girl's funeral this morning. That funeral, one of four on a sad day there, the fifth scheduled for tomorrow. The funeral processions today simple and humble from a community that has met an awful event with dignity and abiding humanity. Our correspondent in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania is Raheem Ellis. More than $500,000 has been donated to charities set up for the Amish, something they are unaccustomed to accepting. Far and wide, churches are bringing meals. We're hearing of corporations and companies providing food. They said to me, you know, we could handle this on our own, but that would not be Christ-like. Why should we stop people from being a blessing to us? And although the Amish recognize the community outpouring as a blessing, what's needed most now, they say, are prayers. Tonight, four other girls remain hospitalized. Another student reportedly has been taken off life support. There is another funeral tomorrow, but members of this Amish community fear it may not be the last. Keith? Raheem Ellis, great, thanks. Those funds have been created to help the families of the Amish victims, of course, but there are reports that those families insist on sharing some of the money with the widow and children of the shooter, Charles Carl Roberts. One fund has been set up exclusively for the Roberts family. Forgiveness as a response to heartbreak. Surprising, perhaps, especially these days, but also perhaps grief's most powerful antidote. Our correspondent is Janet Shamley. An unimaginable crime followed by an inconceivable response. Even though there's been this terrible thing happen, we don't need to think about judgment, we need to think about forgiveness and going on. The Amish community losing its most innocent, but somehow holding on to a steadfast belief in forgiveness, even for a man who targeted their children. Forgiveness is irrational. It's the most irrational thing that most people will ever, ever attempt in their life. Abigail knows that most devastating of losses. Her own daughter, Catherine, also died violently, stabbed by a stranger. Even after the killer was sent to death row, Gail was consumed by hate. I was full of anger and rage and an absolute lusting for revenge for years. No relief until more than a decade later when she wrote Catherine's killer. I was surprised to find that I could forgive you 
This does not mean that I think you are innocent or that you are blameless for what happened. The instant I put the letter in the mailbox, all the anger and rage and ugliness I carried in my body for 12 long years was instantly gone. Gail says it was a moment that changed her life. Forgiveness has the most profound healing power. It releases a person from that need to relive a trauma again and again and again. A belief the Amish live by through the words of a grieving grandfather. Is there anger towards the gunman's family? No. Have you already forgiven? In my heart, yes. A peaceful community rocked by violence, sustained by forgiveness and amazing grace. Janet Shamley and NBC News, Chicago. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. But what a cost to let that happen. I, I don't know that I could do that. Actually, I am certain that I couldn't do that. Cert, certainly not in my own strength. And guess what? God doesn't ask us to. In fact, it is impossible in your own strength to forgive like that, which is one of the reasons why Jesus died on the cross. To not only pay our debt with his life, but to give us his spirit, which supernaturally empowers us to pay the debts of others who sin against us. I think what offends me or upsets me the most is how quickly the Amish forgave. It was like two days after, and they're ready to forgive. You might be like, come on, that is not realistic. Those of you who are hurting or carrying around serious wounds know better. You're like, that's impossible. You know what? You're right. Forgiveness is a process. Notice, notice you heard that woman. She said, it took me 12 years. And yet, is it possible that the cross, um, where Jesus sacrificed himself for us and was a grand invitation to something more, to not only receive forgiveness for our sins, but enter into a brand new life, a way of relating to others who sin against us. I want you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 18. If you want to unsettled now, this is going to unsettle you more. And you, but you're going to see how the cross not only sets us free from our debts, it invites us to see our debtors in a brand new light. Um, here's the deal. Jesus' disciples had, had heard this teaching before. And maybe you have. Every world religion has its own imperative to forgive. But this is more than just like, be nice to, you know, let, let some people off. First century, Jewish rabbis taught that every person should forgive the people who offend them three times. And here in Matthew 18, 21, it says, Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Up to seven times? Now, Peter's trying to be like generous here. He gets this, that like Christ is inviting him to, to a brand new kind of faith that far exceeds the, the traditional religion that he'd grown up with. So he's like, wow, grace, oh, turn the other cheek, go the extra miles, bless your enemies. Wow, I guess more than, forgive people more than three times, you mean like, Almost like seven? Wow, like Dr. Evil. You know, seven, seven represent the perfect number in Hebrew culture. And Jesus answers him, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. Your other translations render it 70 times seven times. And, and, and you CPAs are like, so which is it, 77 or 490? What, you know, what, which one is that? <laughs> Jesus' point is, you shouldn't even keep track of how many times you forgive somebody because forgiveness is a lifestyle, not a one-time event or decision you make based on your feelings or the circumstances if they fit. And this is where we object. 
Because if you've been wronged and you, you protest, and you're, you're right now, you've got a million arguments. You're like, well, why should I make the first move? As Philip Yancey writes in his incredible book, What's So Amazing About Grace, the, the scandal of forgiveness it confronts anyone who agrees to like a moral ceasefire because someone says, I'm sorry. When I feel wronged, I can contrive a hundred reasons against forgiveness. Think of this. He needs to learn a lesson. But I don't want to encourage irresponsible behavior. I'll let her stew for a while. It'll do her good. She needs to learn that actions have consequences. Well, I was the wrong part. It's not up to me to make the first move. Well, how can I forgive if he's not even sorry? I marshal my arguments. This is amazing. Until something happens to wear down my resistance. And when I finally soften to the point of granting forgiveness, it seems a capitulation, a surrender, a leap from hard logic to mushy sentiment. Touche. And I'm sure there are many of you here with wounds more grievous than we, in, in stories to tell. The wounds that some of you have borne, the pain some of you have endured, some of us can't even comprehend. But what if forgiveness wasn't dependent upon the degree to which you'd been wronged, but the degree to which you've been forgiven? See, to illustrate his point about forgiveness, Jesus now tells a story. He shows like a video clip here to the uh, disciples to help them understand. Read it with me. It's in verse 23. He says, therefore, here's, here it is, different. The kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. And as he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. You see in the footnote, it translates to millions of dollars. So there's this guy who owes a king millions of dollars. Since he was not able to pay, verse 25, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. That was the right of a debt holder in ancient Israel. You could get their wife and children actually sell them to make them pay. And it says, the servant fell on his knees and said, be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. In other words, the king said, all right, I'll pay the debt myself. I'll, I'll take the hit. I'll absorb the loss. And it's like, oh, amazing. I love a God like this. We all love when God is gracious or patient towards us, right? Yeah, oh, he's forgiving. He just forgives all the debts. Now watch this, 28, verse 28. But when the servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him 100 denarii. That was like a couple of bucks, literally a few, few dollars. So what did he do? He grabbed him and began to choke him. Justice, pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me, I'll pay you back. The exact same words. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. And when the other servants saw what happened, they were greatly distressed, went to their master, told them everything that happened. The master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master turned him over to the jailers to be tortured until he could pay back all he owed. And this is like crazy troubling, okay? Because this is where people are like, God tortures people who don't forgive? I knew it. He's bloodthirsty. Think about the context this is in, okay? You saw that lady in the interview. What did she say? She said, for 12 years, I was what? Eaten alive. I was consumed. I was, I was tortured by thoughts of revenge. I, she said, lusted in anger. Unforgiveness is a prison all its own. It has its own brutal economy. And it really drive this thing home and make, by the way, everyone uncomfortable in the room. Jesus caps this thing with verse 35. This, by the way, 
is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you, let's read it together, forgive your brother from your heart, from your interior, the unseen inner regions of your spirit. Quite a clip. Simple parable, unsettling. Forgive us our debts, God. Thank you for being forgiving. As we also forgive our debtors. In other words, as we expect God to be patient and gracious and forgiving towards us, there's a reciprocal divine expectation that we in turn are going to forgive those who owe us. And the deal is this. At the cross, in light of the costly sacrifice paid by God to save humanity, cutting loose, sacrificing the life of his son, who are you to withhold forgiveness from those who wrong you in this life. And this is hard. Maybe the hardest thing you'll ever be asked to do. Because it costs, and it takes us back to the cross. You have to look at the cross and the wounds of Christ, what he bore in our place 2,000 years ago. When you think about um, what you have suffered, maybe it's abuse. Was Jesus abused? Oh, yeah. Maybe you've been betrayed dearly. Jesus' betrayal? Betrayed by friend? Yes. Unjustly accused, slandered? Oh, yeah. Physically abused, systematically tortured, yes. Mocked, taunted, yes. God never asks us to do anything he hasn't personally experienced himself. In light of the incredible wrongs that humanity, you and me, committed against him, he looks upon his enemies and said, what? He prays, Father, forgive them. Not destroy them, not pay them back, forgive them. And it's like, what what does that mean? To truly forgive someone from the heart. Because... Some of you are thinking, I don't like this because it means... Does that mean like you let them off the hook? Does it somehow like minimize or negate the wrong that's been done to me? Does it mean it no longer matters? Does it mean I can't be angry or, 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 or justice is just denied? Hardly. See, the cross of Christ teaches us the meaning of true forgiveness. Let me school you a little bit in, the, in Greek and Hebrew just to shed some light. This is fascinating to me. Um, two things here in the Old Testament. The Hebrew word for forgive is... Nasa, can we say this together? Nasa, it means to carry or bear like a weight or a load on your back. In the New Testament, the word for forgive is aphemai, aphemai, to let go. You release control of something. In other words, according to the Bible, the Old Testament and the New Testament, there are two parts of forgiveness. Nasa, you carry or bear a weight, and aphemai, you let go of something. You instantly get the weight part because you get it. When you bear something, it cuts into you. It causes pain. Same thing with forgiving. It involves very hard work of stepping over revenge, and you have to bear and absorb the pain of what someone did to you. Give you an example. I was talking with a girl here at Liquid recently who was having a conflict with a female coworker, and uh, she she they they worked closely together, but then a guy got involved and like kind of blew up, and she totally slandered her friend. Not 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 the girl who goes to Liquid. Her coworker slandered her and got gossiped about it, told untrue stories. So it got back to her. She did actually the hard thing. She actually kind of confronted her coworker about it. Um, She was totally defensive. In fact, her coworker, to kind of protect herself, goes back after their meeting, sends out a mass email to everybody in their work group, totally amping it up, totally slandering her, untrue rumors, innuendo, lies, shredded her character. Now, law of revenge says fire with fire. She's wronged me, payback time. But she told me something fascinating that happened. She goes, so, a few weeks ago, Tim, I'm out with my friends over dinner. My coworker's not there. And somebody, I didn't say anything, somebody tells this kind of unflattering story about the coworker who slandered me. And then someone else says, well, yeah, I heard she is. And she goes, I literally started salivating. 
She was like, this is my moment. I can pour it on here. Payback time. I'm, I see light. I am running through this thing. She had a great shot to take a, take a shot at this girl. But she, she goes, this is the hard part. She goes, I'm a follower of Jesus. She goes, I'm, I get it. Christ has forgiven me. Oh, my goodness. I have to forgive. I have to, well, when someone persecutes, I bless them. Ah! And so she goes, I did the hard thing. She goes, I didn't say anything. And it almost killed me. I, and I... I was struck by the language she used, because that's very telling. It almost killed me not to pay her back. When someone wrongs us and we decline to get even, but instead follow Christ, what happens? Ah, something inside of us dies, doesn't it? We undergo a kind of death. It's called the, the fleshly part of our heart that harbors hostility. Or nurses ill will. You literally undergo a, a kind of crucifixion in a very profound and significant way. You participate in the suffering of Christ. That's why so many of us balk at forgiveness. Because it's like, well, once I'm hurt, why, why get hurt again? Keller writes this in his book. I thought this was perfect. He says, to refrain from lashing out at someone when you want to do with all your being is agony. It's a form of suffering. You not only forgo the original loss of happiness, reputation, opportunity, but now you forgo the consolation of inflicting the same on them. You literally absorb their debt. Take it on yourself. And it hurts terribly. Many people would say it feels like a kind of death. But mark it. It's a death that leads to resurrection instead of the lifelong living death of bitterness and cynicism. See, folks, forgiveness while will hurt you short-term, long-term leads to resurrection. New life, freedom, hope. It's the road less traveled, but in grace you pay, or nasab, bear the pain yourself. There's a theologian by the name of H.R. McIntosh, and and he says, in every forgiveness is enshrined a great agony. If you've ever declined the opportunity for revenge, thank you, um, you'll know what I'm talking about. Um, Joey... uh, Joey L's parents, if you can come to the kids' room, that would be awesome. Um, That would be great. There's nothing wrong, but he's just mildly upset. A little bit bit crying there, so you can take that out. Crucifixion is, and it's counterintuitive, is God's way of leading to new life. When we nasah, we bear their pain. Throw those words back up there. Would you just write that down one more time? Imagine dangling off the cliff. You have your enemy prone. And instead of cutting them, you actually cut yourself loose. One at a time, tie them back on and let yourself go. A femi. It means you say, God, you alone can judge and be the jury and executioner. The Amish did this with the shooter of their children. Um, some people think forgiveness like you don't hold people accountable. That's not true. That's cheap grace. Take the case of like a sexual abuse victim. Um, forgiving an abuser is not incompatible with exposing or pressing legal charges against them. Forgiveness doesn't mean you tolerate injustice. God is just. We should be glad for that. Actions have consequences, sometimes severe. Evildoers have to be forced to accept. In fact, in some situations, by the way, letting someone face the consequences of their sin can be the most loving thing you can do. It's not denial. It doesn't say it doesn't matter. It doesn't negate the offense or minimize or condone or overlook it. It doesn't undermine justice. But it tempers it with divine love and actually has a possibility of transforming your heart and actually trans- and changing theirs. You guys know this. Whenever you've confronted somebody, you know, when you've kind of not forgiven them, you know how it goes. You just go, I don't want to talk to you. I want to confront you. Jesus said confront you, so here I am. I brought a couple people with me, all right? (laughs) 
You don't, have to, don't even bother. There is no chance of repentance. There's no chance of restoration. But when you seek inner forgiveness, when you ephemai them in your heart, let them go to God, it's completely different. Because you, can, you actually can genuinely wish them well, and they don't sense that you want to hurt them. When they sense that, forget it. But it costs you dearly. You have to die to do something like that. Justice and love, or we're, a kiss at the cross. In justice, you bear their pain. In love, you release your offender to God. Nasah and Afimai. Throw it up there, Phil. In justice, God bears the pain of our sin. And in love, Afimai, he lets it go. 1 Peter 2.24 says this. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. On the cross, Jesus was literally absorbed the wrath. He bore the pain to meet the demands of a just God. Some of you don't like the idea of a just God. Who doesn't want a just God, by the way? You want a God who like, just kind of lets things go? Or I don't think you know, God you know, really should do... Who doesn't want a God that isn't outraged at the evils in this world? Who isn't outraged at nickel mines? You wanna, you wanna, who is not furious about rape and abuse? You want a God like that who's not grieved about AIDS, who's not pissed off by poverty and hunger? This is where the Christian God is different than every other religion. It's not this impersonal God of Eastern, Eastern religion. The cross says the Christian God personally entered into the pain and suffering of this world in order to right it for good. And in justice, he bears the punishment. In love, he releases the offender. And in grace, he invites us to die with him. So you can taste new life. Father, I forgive them. I let them go. From the old way of living, eye for eye. You don't have to carry around that grudge or hurt forever. You are free to live in a new way. It is the law of grace, of radical love and forgiveness. But folks, here's the deal. Don't feel at this point, because some of you are like, I know I should forgive. I know. God doesn't saddle you with this like cripple or condemn you. Forgiveness is hard. It is a process. It can take a lifetime. You, you, you can forgive someone in your heart, release them to God, and just a picture, a word or an email, and all of a sudden, boom, you're right back there in an instant, which is why Jesus says, forgive how many times? 70 times 7, meaning you're going to lose count at the times you will be forced to cut the rope and let them go again and again and again. And each time their debt gets shorter, but eventually you'll be free because you're dying and you'll be a different person. This is hard. They need to say they're sorry. Some of you are like, I ain't saying you're forgiven until they say I'm sorry. Guess who's still in control then? They've got you hanging on a rope. See, you can forgive in your heart and release them to God in prayer and actually say, Jesus, Father, forgive them without having direct contact. This is amazing. Steve Siemens writes this. He says, as we stand at the cross, we must remember that initially forgiveness is more about a decision than an emotion. First and foremost, it's a matter of the what? The will. We come to a place where we choose to forgive. You may struggle with negative feelings towards a person who's hurt you. You may do that for a long time. But what's most important at first is your willingness. Now watch this. In forgiving, Siemens writes, you can send your will ahead by express. Your emotions generally come later by slow freight. <laughs> I love that word picture. <laughs> your will goes by express. Your feelings come by slow freight. If you've ever attempted authentic cross-centered forgiveness, you know it's not something you can do yourself ever. You have to draw your strength from the cross of Christ from his spirit. It's not irrational, as the psychologist said. The, the word is supernatural. 
That's why when you put your faith in, in, in Christ, he personally plants his spirit to give you a supernatural resource that has supernatural power to follow his example. Because you can trust God for justice. You can mete out vengeance as you see fit. But I'm joining Jesus in his mission to die for a grace-starved world. That's how the Amish did it. For all their simple ways, they're people who keep close company with God. Without all the distractions kind of of our cluttered world, they instinctively drew on grace and were able to immediately forgive in their hurt. Now, you understand something about the Amish. You get it, right? They forgave, but grief and anger and loss and hurt will echo and resound in that community for years, generations even. But catch this. The evil, it's over. It ends there. It does not go forward because where sin abounded, grace abounded even more. When people say, why did Jesus have to die? <laughs> Couldn't God just forgiveness? You already know the answer. Think of your own life. If the evil is serious enough, no one just forgives. <laughs> Someone has to sacrifice. Hebrews says, without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness. Someone has to bear the pain, pay the debt, so the evil gets swallowed up and can go no further. And on the cross, that's what Jesus did. God paid our debt. He saved us with his love. And it wasn't just a good moral example. It was the beginning of a new life, a, revol a revolution of grace and forgiveness that someday will flood this whole world. So question for you in, the, in your life groups this week. Who could you forgive? Who might God's spirit be prompting you to cut yourself loose for? I understand this is a risk, by the way. <laughs> I mean, all sacrifices. God risked everything to save us. And the problem is this. By grace, we've been saved. And to grace, we are called. I don't want you to mishear that. I need to speak to a few of you because some of you are going to just be disordered about this. Grace doesn't mean being taken advantage of or abused over and over again. When the Amish built a new schoolhouse at the site of the tragedy, they put locks on the new school. Grace doesn't mean you forfeit common sense or set up boundaries or put restrictions in place so evil doesn't happen again over and over. God wants us to learn from past wounds. That may mean protecting your family or your heart, especially if there's been repeated abuse or exploitation. But you're not to shut your heart down forever or steal it or become embittered or cynical. Forgive from the heart assumes you are keeping it open. Open to God's leading and you're drawing your strength and power from a source greater than yourself. From your Savior, Jesus Christ. By grace you've been saved, to grace you were called. Who could you cut loose and forgive? I was going to end today with an inspirational story of forgiveness, but I'm not going to. Because in seminary, that's what they tell you to do. They say, at the end of the message, give some stirring example. Uh, you know, of like some POW, you know, prisoner who like, who like, if you know, forgives his prison guard, gets saved, becomes a missionary, converts his torture, and then they like save the whole nation for Christ. I read a story like that. I guess it happened. It's a miracle when that happens. But I, I think it sets up this false expectation like, so this week, if, if you forgive, it'll all go swimmingly. Da, 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 da. Um, that's not how real life works. It didn't happen actually for Jesus that way. And everyday grace, I think, is a lot messier. Uh, a lot muddier, more gray. And so I want to just close with the email that I got on Friday from the couple here at Liquid who went the extra mile and gave grace to their missing dad of seven years. They invited him into their home and actually had him stay over. And he wrote this. Hey, Tim, well, God showed up for us. My wife's dad left Wednesday morning. And I have to tell you, it was awkward at first, but he settled right in. My kids loved him, and he had a softness and kindness that I'd never seen in him before. Now, 
We're not one big happy family right now. But I feel that God opened up this door to us, especially my wife, and used the scripture and message from Sunday to push us through. Keep praying. Keep praying indeed 70 times 7. Is that what it really costs to forgive? I mean, aren't there limits? I don't know. Did God set limits on the grace that he's shown you? Greater love has no one than this, that he laid down his life for his friends. While we were enemies, Christ died for us. Who would you be willing to cut the cord for this week? I want to ask you to stand with me. We're going to stand. Downstairs is going to stand. I want you just to, just to close your eyes as you stand. So where you are, I want you to envision the face of the person or the enemy or the people who you've been thinking of and God's brought to mind during our time. Can you imagine praying with Jesus, Father, forgive him. Father, forgive them. Just take a moment. Bring them to your mind. Bring them to your mind. God, you see the faces. And Jesus, when you looked down from the cross, you saw every man and every woman in humanity hurling insults, our, our, our sin nailing you there, and yet you prayed, Father, forgive them. I love them so much I will give my life for them. And I believe I will be raised to new life. Jesus, increase our faith. I don't have enough faith about that. Help us, Father. Help every man and woman here right now, Lord, to consider the faces of their enemies. To look in the mirror and see your reflection there. Let's pray out loud the Lord's Prayer together. This is how Jesus taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. May your kingdom come, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the glory and the power forever. Amen.